Hi, podcast friends. Your long-lost host, Abby Hassan here. This is not a full episode of Against the Law, though I hope some more are coming in the future. But, if in case you miss hearing my voice, I have recorded and started another podcast series with C. Derek Varn of Varn Vlog, and this is the first episode. So, well, really, this is a preview of the first episode. So have a listen, and if you like it, you can listen over on his podcast feed. Details will be in the notes. Uh, likewise, you can watch the entire thing on a video format on YouTube, which will also be in the notes. I won't be posting all of the podcasts that we do here, but if they are law-related, I probably will. I hope you all are well, and... Have a great day, and enjoy. In a, in a lot of ways, it's um, this project, uh, this idea of vulgar complexity, is something that that I started a few years ago. It, you know, uh, it's one of like a few of my kind of intellectual threads and and it's also for my background it's it's kind of like i think a lot of philosophy is it's also autobiographical in a sense um because you know i studied computer science undergrad and had a kind of a lot of was steeped in that kind of uh in computational theory and i got into information theory but you know like um foundations of mathematics and kind of the, the you know that original kind of logical positivism and the the kind of the grand project of the early 20th century of unifying um, mathematics and logic and so I, I was kind of steeped in all that stuff and and so always had a very um I was always interested in that kind of stuff and, and it wasn't like it wasn't mystified to me right that it was that it was kind of a real area of interest and a real area of study and so like as my kind of progression towards leftist politics and like my deepening um reading into into marxism like that stuff was always in the background and that was always like that kind of reconciliation between a kind of um you know because like as you say a lot of a lot of the kind of like maybe even you know late 20th century marxism and then especially as filtered into the united states that we get it's 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 it's, it's based in the humanities right right it's basically <laughs> humanities pretending to be science um and and i think that's important like like for example you and i mentioned uh, this is a good introduction to this um, despite the fact that I think at certain points, uh, the circle and the so-called and Brenmont book, you know, fashionable nonsense is unfair to Deleuze and at certain points it's unfair to Latour. I by and large actually think, you know, and this is going to have me outed as a Philistine or whatever. And I've thought this even when I was in the humanities, that they were right about a lot of what was going on in the continental philosophical circles but once we see what people on say the skeptics movement do do with that it's it's almost it's almost worse than what it's critiquing um 
And so what do I mean by that? Well, one, for example, like Sokol and Bregmont have a very naive notion of what science is. They basically call science like rigorous common sense. And I'm like, bullshit. That is bullshit. Or pretty easy to say and still say, yeah, but like, let's not pretend that everything is science or that everything can do what science does. Um, that's not a controversial assertion either. Um, and I've also, interestingly, even though we're to come down pretty hard on the skeptics movement, I have become increasingly um, convinced that the logical positivist of the Vienna school, in particular, most of whom were Marxist, uh, the, the whole story about them being undone and, be, you know, in both the humanities and even in some of the sciences is totally unfair because the person who the, the people the people who proved that the verification and falsification criteria were not good enough for demarcation of science were the logical positives themselves, not an outside research project. Um, and that this indicates that it wasn't a defeated project. It just had some bad notions that uh, I think you have to go through their logic to see why they're bad. Um but what I find interesting about that is that's a different thing than say what logical positivism or logical constructivism or whatever is it later called in America or logical empiricism as it becomes once they drop the positivist claims. Um, in America, its political content is shorn from it um, uh, deliberately. And like, the the kind of the reason why they wanted ethics and mathematics and science to all match up uh, was that they were fighting Heidegger and that they were fighting um, they were fighting like fascistic relativism. They were fighting and they were they were trying to come up with a way in which social science could be both logical and scientific. But to do that, we needed to pin down what logical and scientific was right mm -hmm. and that that project actually gets totally obscured by the 70s this is before you and i get involved but like that philosophical project gets really mired down in logical empiricists after popper's commitment to anti-communism um which is like almost the opposite of the political commitments that they started with um, and these are different people yeah. because the first and second generation are largely dead by the time you get to the 1970s. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's what, you know, we can only get, I, I think that great split and, and the effect of anti-Marxism, you know, and the, you know, the, the red, especially the 50s and 60s red scare, right, happening at the peak of American scientific dominance globally right you know so so it's kind of like you know the greatest site if if the nuclear bomb was the greatest scientific achievement right of the 20th century in terms of political impact right like mm. it also had the effect of um of of really robbing the ability of a kind of positive scientific program from affiliating with uh, actual political program that, you know what I mean? That, that, that just denuded of politics. And, and that kind of void is where I think we see 
um, that skeptic movement flourishing, but you know, it's kind of flourishing on this foundationless end of history moment, right? Um, this kind of artificial hegemony of post-World War II uh, America, right? Right. Um, so I and, think this th th that's great, and that's that's important. I think what I think we have to look at also is the shift of the academic milieu from these salons and that are that have institutes and universities, but they're largely funded by all kinds of different things: the state, um, uh, Marxist research institutes, party affiliated things. Um, the church in Europe, uh, there's there's many different institutions of science, and and the in the European university is more medieval, particularly before World War II. Um, that's both good and bad. I'm just it just it doesn't operate under capitalist prerogatives are in the are in the auspices of the Cold War, whereas the the post um, World War II university is is a imported medieval institution, but, but completely removed from its medieval context in the United States. It is originally a tie to primarily churches and then to state land grants later. Um, and it is expanded dramatically um, during the GI bill. And then basically the university, as we know, it is like a, a kind of shadow form of its European counterpart but was designed and came into flourishing specifically under the guise of what we might call the cold, you know, Cold War largesse. I mean, and under capitalist developmentalism in competition with Cold War largesse. So that's why there's, and then there's these external factors and just like most of Europe is destroyed. Most of Asia is destroyed. The United States has all the wealth. Like yeah. it's valorizable and uses it to rebuild Europe and uh, pretty much Europe alone. Uh, in some of the Anglo speaking parts of the, the British empire and then tie them into our trade network, establishing a global trade network, which also gives us, you know, educational dominant dominance. And we have the resources to do the kind of science that say only the English and the Germans and, and, and the Russians really do, um, Later, and Russia becomes our major counterpart, and also does uh, massive work during this time period. And so you have a real divide at the time between the capitalist world and the Russian world, and you see all these advances come up that really get integrated um, in the '90s after the fall of the wall. But with a, we are going to erase the Soviet history of all this stuff. Like we're going to erase the Soviet history of Hardane. We're going to erase the Soviet history of. Pro a probability theory. Uh, we're going to race the Soviet history of its half of the development of cybernetics. Um, we're going to pretend this is all the free market, even though it was absolutely everything but that. Um, and the other thing that develops is like scientists are trained during the end of the 20th century and they're trained this way to, to view what they do in an apolitical context. And when it does become political, it is only basically to secure their own funding. Um, and, and that is something that I think kind of leads us up to 
the skeptics movement and where that comes in the popular order. And I think you're right that the skeptics movement, like the, the new humanist movement is what this is during the high point of what we're talking about, right? Like, and why is it humanism and not atheism? Because militant atheism is associated with the far left. It's associated with anarchists and communists and specifically the Soviet Union. In the 1950s is when we start putting all this religious stuff in, in U.S. Uh, sec, you know, secular vernacular, like God we trust comes on the dollar and and uh, we add it to the pledge, et cetera, et cetera. And the, and the courts. <laughs> right. Um, and so in the 70s, you have this sort of like ethical humanism and the ethical humanism walks a fine line. And if you really read between the lines, it's basically saying, hey, we're going to do it to taunt between the socialist and capitalist thing. Like we are we are neutral in mm -hmm. the whole Cold War, basically. That's the that's the stance of like the Paul Kurtz era um, humanist. But but what they really care about is we are going to push back on this rising religiousification that is that began under the guise of anti-communism uh, anti to really take hold. Now, it's not like before the 1950s, America wasn't super fucking religious. It was. But religion as a civic statement that was politicized really is largely something that... that it kind of happens during World War II, but they're, they're all over the map. And then um, the religious groups are all over the place. Some of them are progressive, some of them are conservative. But this whole anti-communist religious bent really gets solidified in the 50s and 60s, and becomes to to be comes to power in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and the ethical humanists kind of say, okay, well, well, we're neutral on this capital socialist thing, so don't red scare us. We're, we're um, but we're pushing back on the religious content as a social movement. Um, what is interesting about ethical humanism is while it values science, it does not pretend that that's its only concern. It does not pretend that that's its only, that that's even the only thing that we can talk about truth claims about. I and mean, if you read Kurtz, there's the humanist manifesto is not like that at all. Um, but the ethical humanism movement really doesn't have a lot of sway. It never becomes a dominant force in American life. Like, in fact, it's kind of coming into being when you might, you, something we might think of as like the third great awakening or the rise of the evangelicals, etc. cetera. Um, it's when the evangelicals are kind of entering the Republican party, right? Like the, the, yeah, that happens in the evangelicals are entering the Republican party in force at the end of the 1970s. It's the biggest politicization of religion since the civil war. Um, which is where, you know, and I think it's important structurally, right? In, in, in a way, part of the evangelical entry and part of the growth of the evangelical movement broadly was a grassroots organizing and building people from school boards to mm -hmm. city council. Right. And like in each, like when you're running a school board, like, <laughs> you know, it's almost just like, that's what you do is create curriculum, right? Like you could even from from a from just a basic even a like whether whether this was science or another issue. The point is when you're running a school board, like you're gonna put in you have to do something, 
right? And so, I mean, it's just an interesting kind of when you're building, you know, it, it, to me, it's kind of it, it, the structure of the social movement is also important to think about, right? Well, one of the things that I like to think about when you think about the evangelical movement is I also, I talk about this a lot when I talk about effective dual power movements. You have Bolsheviks and you have a whole lot of religious movements, um, <laughs> which makes people uncomfortable. But I was like, okay, dual power movements, true Torah, dualism in, in Israel, Hezbollah, um, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, depending on the time period. Um, and what do I mean by dual power movements? In that they both work inside and outside of institutions and they tend to be highly coordinated but not centrally leadered in a, in a key way. The exception is the, the the John Birch Society, and we like that's a fun one, but but that's <laughs> another day. Um, and and they don't do what the liberal left impulses to do. The liberal left impulses to say, okay, we're going to control the universities. Or we're not even we're not even aiming to take them over, but we're going to enter them to have our ideas in real contestation at the high levels, and thus we'll have a play in education. Um, we're going to try to affect national policy, etc. The the kind of dual power strategy aim is like, okay, we're going to try for this big stuff too, but we're also going to take over all the school boards, and which is something I'm like, I've always been like, leftists, why don't you actually try to take over a school board? But, um, uh, well, they did in San Francisco, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> true. Every now and then, but, but, uh, what we see is the in the 90s is the Soviet Union falls. All right, this is the beginning of both the skeptics movement and new atheism. A lot of the most zealous forms of, say, libertarianism, like Andranian objectivism begin to burn out people within the movement. Now, that doesn't seem immediately relevant to the skeptics movement until we talk about who some of these people are. Um, and so, and, and why do you need objectivism anymore? We beat the Soviet Union. We can, like, we're in control. We can have a little bit of social welfare. It's not going to end the world. Like, um, that's, so you see this shift from people who were, a lot of them are ideological libertarians, dedicated cold warriors, um, into this end of history cultural war period. And this also happens to coincide with let's what we could say is like the shoring up of the periphery for areas that for whatever cultural reason were hard to integrate into the modern capitalist world system, which tend to be Islamicate. Um well, not just that, but but that's one of the places, and and after oil is found there, that's the places it really matters because you know no one really cares about Qatar or Saudi Arabia before that, um, and so you have this kind of cultural war rhetoric infusing the the ethical humanist movement. It starts abandoning the humanist movement because, like, well, we don't need a detente between socialism and capitalism anymore because the socialists just got their ass kicked. Um, capitalism doesn't look to be making everyone poorer at this particular moment either. Um, even China seems to be on a capitalist development kick, so we can kind of back off from that. We need to fight these evangelicals. And also what starts to happen is the entire, and I think this is missed in this narrative, these parts, you know, this is the complexity part. 
the Cold War largesse ends in the university because it's not needed anymore. So the university gets neoliberalized. The neoliberalization of the university comes really rather late. Um, like, and the reason why is as long as it's a Soviet Union, actually neoliberalization is sort of subsidized by this one sector that is exempt from it. And that sector is um, what we might call the primary research sector of, of education, like particularly of secondary education that stops. So you see this real decline in scientific funding. So at this moment of like, oh, we have all the power, we, you know, um, financially, U.S. has been declining for 20 years, but we won the Cold War, so yay, and we're in a, we have the internet, so there does seem to be a temporary gain in economic mobility. It's kind of overstated now. People talk about the 90s as like the last great decade. I'm like, yeah, except when you control for inflation and purchasing power. Um, <laughs> the last great decade is actually like the end of the 50s. but. Nonetheless, I think this gives you a perfect kind of social milieu for something like the skeptics movement to come. You have a lot of scientists who are seeing their funding cut. You know, they're also competing with the humanities. And now they're like, well, we got to get what's ours because it's funded getting cut. So fuck the humanities. Like, even though, you know, humanities stuff takes way less money to actually run. Um and that's kind of what's dominating the 90s. You have the like the sociological science wars. Um, you have the advent of postmodernism. And I always use quotations because I don't think postmodernism is a thing. Um, it's like it's a periodization, but it's like five different movements. So the, some of which aren't copacetic with each other. And all that happens. Religious life in America finally starts to slowly eke towards what it's like in Europe. Now, the reason why that didn't happen is hard to hard to say. I do think the Europeans uh, well welfare net's part of that. Like I've always pointed out, but like in the Southeast, if you were not just a person of color, but particularly if you were a person of color, but if you were anybody who was poor, your primary social welfare net is actually the church. So that that in a kind of dual power way, these institutions are also protecting people's material livelihood. In the late nineties, that kind of begins to stop partly because there's so much energy in the religious movement into just straight up Republican politics. Um, and so a lot of the things that were considered kind of socially prosperous, but not, you know, you could believe in one way or the other, you start having people who are like and Randians who are also supposedly Christian, which is something that blows my fucking mind. But but that really is a thing that you don't see really start to happen in any kind of size until the 1990s. Uh -huh. um, and and so the, the, the church, ironically, in giving so much power over to the GOP is ending its dual power function and kind of subsuming itself into um, the Republican apparatus, which after 9-11 is going to actually cause it to die pretty quick. I mean, like, I think people, what, I've been hearing liberals, like, I heard Gloria Steinman go on, go on the BBC and talk about how, like, oh, we were seeing a rebirth of evangelical Christianity. And I'm like, no, we're not. 
Like, there's no statistic that backs that up at all. Like, they're just, they're like a wounded, dying bear. They're lashing out because they're losing. Like, well, it's just that, you know, I think that that maybe is the fruits of the 70s and 80s and mm-hmm. into the 90s are bearing now in these retrograde institutions like the courts. I mean, like retrograde in terms of like, fall, these are institutions that follow um society right because it takes you know to create the kind of you know to create a judicial decision uh to overthrow roe v wade that's a 50-year project right right just like the judicial decision to instantiate it was really like a 25-year project but yeah yeah exactly right so these are tailing society by decades right um you know that that you know that that uh but so it, it might be an ascendance in the courts of a particular form of interpretation or you know formation of judicial thinkers but that i mean that's just more evidence of of you know what you're talking about in terms of the actual numbers in the churches and people's um you know behavior is just kind of the, the time lag and kind of democracy lag between the people and, uh, you know, particularly the courts as institutions. You don't need an anti-democratic institution to enforce a social norm that would be enforced normatively anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, like, what do I mean? Like, if, if, for example, if, if evangelicals, and I also like to point out that there are no evangelicals on the Supreme Court. There's not. It's all Catholics or Episcopalians are Jews. So... Um, but if evangelicals were with the social force doing this as a kind of vanguard, then the need for this would be less relevant to a lot of these um, courts. And also they wouldn't have needed to create a 50 year series of, of steps to undo um, the situation. Although I do want to point out something about and we'll get to this on a different episode when we talk about law. But when we talk about that, we have to be careful because I do think part of the situation with the courts is that we use law in the 1960s to enforce a social detente where there really was two strong sides that were about equally um, powerful. And the Warren court doing what it did seemed to be attempting to because I do admit sometimes the legal logic of the Warren court is tortured. Um, uh, do attempt to be trying to instantiate a social peace by putting certain things into law and moving them seemingly beyond the realm of politics, which has bitten us all in the ass now that there's been a 50-year conservative uh, project to use that power which the Warren courts instantiated to side with yeah. the the right. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, and we could we'll pick up this thread, I guess, another time. I yeah, because this, this is, is also, your specialty. <laughs> well, not really, not, not really. But I mean, I mean, I, as a lawyer, yes. But like, I, but you know, it's interestingly that's also kind of the birth of, of critical race theory. Uh, you know, like especially through someone like Derek Bell, who was one of those litigators, um, and him kind of witnessing what it didn't do <laughs> was as much the kind of birth of, of his legal thinking as anything else. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the, I think we've set the stage pretty well for like this kind of, you know, this, it is such an interesting period, right? This, this 
um, this, you know, the, this end of end of history, 90, 92 to September 11th, basically, right, is this kind of first era of the skeptics movement. And that's kind of, you know, I, when I was kind of trying to read a little bit into this, I, I, I came across something I found interesting um, that that was basically an attempt by some various analytic ph philosophers to have Derrida canceled, right? Um, yeah, John Searle, I think, led this, didn't he? Um, I don't know if it was so. It was a, it was a uh, Smith was. Oh uh, yeah, but but I look. I'm sure Searle would have. <laughs> Searle no, would maybe have Searle. I think maybe Searle, I'm, I'm trying to figure what it, there was one analytic philosopher. Who led the, who led the charge, and then one ana one analytic philosopher who's like, no, this is ridiculous. Like, um, and yeah, I remember this this move to get to get Derrida like removed from his post at Stanford. Well, well, and... well no, no, no. It was it was to Cambridge was going to give him an honorary degree. Oh yes, and and so someone you know wrote a. It was kind of like the what was that letter that everyone was upset about a couple years ago? It was. Uh, um, it, it was like a letter, you know, signed by all, a bunch of, you know, bunch of philosophers saying that, you know, well, well, what this man does might resemble philosophy in form. A physicist would never be able to publish with this level of rigor. You know, it was just, it was, it was very much of that moment, like in that kind of, that, that, that skeptic movement culture war thing where, you know, the Sokol affair, all that kind of stuff where it was, uh, this, this, uh, it's almost it like we don't tar postmodernism as like a serious threat to to the academy and and i think that was interesting for me because as i was i was also very frustrated with post-structuralist philosophy at the time because i thought it was conservative and um and then i became a conservative and then i was still frustrated with it because i thought it was the wrong kind of conservative but I did think, I mean, my essential argument about it had always been that the level of relativism that it espouses is highly conservative. Um, now that I know more about how it came to be, right, about its origins, and we could do a whole thing on that if you want to in another time, I do think it was it was a, like, a lot of the postmodern and post-structural turn is, like, a burnout from... Uh, you know a lot of the the failures of marxism in in the 1970s particularly in france and particularly in light of 68 and then later Mitterrand. like if you read like uh jean baudrillard's like writings about how he's responding to the communists during the Mitterrand government you all you you realize like oh these guys were committed communists and they feel like they got sold out and so they d basically gave up all their beliefs like period like about beliefs in like anything um, and, and so in this weird way, you have two responses to the kind of failure of a bunch of different projects during the Cold War fighting each other, both trying to figure out like basically which way history died. <laughs> um, like, did it die into linguistic uh, cul-de-sacs or did it die into scientific funding departments we're going to figure it out that's what we're battling for and what i find interesting about this except for the fight against like um increasingly theocratic impulses 
as the evangelical movement consolidated in the Republican Party, um, it it is unclear what the stakes for most people are in that battle. Like that, this kind of seems like a very trumped up version of a justification for funding. Like, um, it, you know, that's, that scene. And by the time you get to the, I remember this now, it wasn't the removing us post at Stanford. It was the honorary degree thing. And by the time you get to that, it's just, it's like, you're going to go after Derrida over that. Like really? Well, it, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, I, I wonder also if it's kind of, uh, this, because of the fall of the Soviet Union, right? You get this kind of triumphalism um, in a kind of liberal, um, in, in that kind of liberal space, right? In that kind of, uh, you know, it, it's American Prometheanism, right? Like, it's like, well, there, you know, it is Francis Fukuyama, right? It's like, you know, not that he was whatever. We don't have to talk. About we're not going to go into how Fukuyama is actually not guilty yeah, of what Fukuyama yeah, 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 was yeah, yeah. accused of. But yes, but, but the point is right. It, it's this moment where it's like, like, well, there aren't any big fights. You know, let's let's squash let's squash the little ones. And um, you know, and, and I, I agree with you that 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 I mean, I don't have a ton of experience in academia, but I I, I do. It does, you know, especially this time, the, you know, the ability to to fight to the death over the smallest, so the smallest differences means that, like, you know, that it's not surprising that that um, that people were not collegial towards their their humanities brethren. Um, but uh, although so, it's funny, it's funny how many of those people were on the Epstein Express, and I, I, I <laughs> like I'll get back to that later about this whole in this independent. But um, one of the well, I, one of the things I think is interesting about this is is Skeptic Magazine is interesting because it comes out of this battle. Um, whereas there's we talked about this. There's two skeptical magazines that kind of come out. One is way older than the other. I mean, Skeptical Inquirer um, is the older of the two magazines. I think believed by a lot. Um, Skeptical Inquirer comes out of. Uh, uh. Yeah, it's the the Center for Inquiry, or is that right? Yeah, the, the Center for Inquiry is who holds it now. Originally, it's the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of the Claims of the, of the Paranormal. And so it's just a debunking of weird shit magazine that's a, kind of uh, seen as part of the, of the larger humanist movement because the, uh, the Psychop, which is also a terrible name, comes out of that. <laughs> Um, it, however, as a magazine, I think really begins, um, when is it founded? In 1976. Yeah, no, oh, yeah, okay. Skeptical Inquirer, 1976. Skeptical Inquirer. Yeah. So it's, it's actually part of what we would consider the, the, uh, ethical humanist movement, but it's in the debunking realm, which becomes in the eighties, the only kind of part of that that sticks. Like... All the other parts of this of the like ethical humanist movement kind of fall away, and we're just like, well, Bigfoot's bullshit, like, and <laughs> you know, and so, and it it kind of, um, man, its original magazine is like really awful. It's it's Zetetic was what it was called. It was like skeptical seeker and 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 uh, 
in Greek. Um, and it started by this guy, um, Marcelo Truzzi. Um, but he, he co-founds it with Paul Kurtz. And so it directly is tied to the, to the ethical humanism movement just doesn't really take off. And like I said, it's more read as like, Oh, well, this is like the anti 40 in times. We can read it for that. Um, for those of you who don't know what 40 in times is, this is weird, you know, paranormal bullshitty stuff. And, and that's all it's concerned with for a long time. Skeptics magazine is different. It starts in 1992. And I was a partisan of it. Um, in in my college years, which roughly uh, I'm a, roughly overlap with you, but because of specifically when I got involved with the skeptic music, it's a different time. Um, because in the aughts, it's the side that's kind of taking the middle ground on the neoconservative side. It's actually pushing back on some of the like the Sam Harris mm-hmm. foreign policy stuff, but it's not. It, it, it's doing so from a conservative position, actually, that that's not immediately apparent to a lot of people. Um, so the Skeptic Society and and Skeptic Magazine really starts, what, 1992, right? Yeah, 92. And, and it, you know, it's it started, you know, that, that's why that Derrida thing, is, that was the same year, right? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it started by uh, Michael Shermer, right? And it's... Uh, I think that, you know, I, I guess it's involved. It does some of the debunking stuff, right? There is a debunking thread to the magazine. I think there's a science popularizing thread, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then there's this culture war thread, right? Where it's it's really, like, like we kind of discussed, taking aim at this kind of, you know, this, this figure of the postmodern, basically humanities professor that, you know, 